This is the God in All Things podcast, rooted in Ignatian spirituality and seeking the presence of God in the everyday. This week I'm sharing with you a three-part talk I gave last month at St. Anne's Church in Marietta, Georgia, called Cultivate Your Faith, Dig Deep and Bloom. If you haven't heard the previous talk on prayer, go ahead and listen to that one first. Today's talk is on reconciliation. Yesterday, we talked about prayer. Uh, We talked about prayer as a deeply intimate, personal relationship with God. Um, A relationship where, where you and God are tilling the garden together, working in a shared project that helps bring love, bring God's love into the world. And we saw prayer as a way to focus a way to see with new eyes, to cultivate a greater awareness of the presence of God in my life. Tonight we're going to talk about reconciliation. And there are many understandings of reconciliation. But I first want to focus on reconciliation as a conversion of self and a conversion of relationships. I had mentioned yesterday that I worked for a short time as a hospital chaplain uh, in Washington, D.C., and it was a difficult role, accompanying people at vulnerable moments in their lives, limiting moments in their lives. But day after day, as I visited patient after patient, I began to notice a theme. When people found them themselves in a situation of weakness or limitation because of an illness or stroke or cancer. Their time in bed convalescing often led them to a desire to reconcile in some way. And my patient Leroy, who I mentioned yesterday, found the ability to reconcile himself with the reality of God's love. I met another patient who found himself regretting some damaged relationships, seeing the foolishness and the grudges he was holding. And he told me that he wanted to reconcile with his family. One woman became reflective on the sinfulness of her past and asked to make a confession to a priest. Yet another patient who was nearing the end of her life felt regret never being baptized and felt the need to make amends with God. By her request, I baptized her, and she died a few days later. Each of these people, when they were forced by a medical issue to pause and take an account of their lives, found a deep desire to reconcile in some way with self, with loved ones, like family, or with God. As St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, if you know his story, he found himself in a similar position. After a cannonball shattered his knee in battle, he lay in in bed for a great deal of time, recovering. And as he lay in bed, he he read the lives of, of Christ and of the saints, reflecting on his own life 
which had been full of vanity and sin and pride. God used that moment of forced pause, prayerful reflection, to move him to a desire to change his life, to change his way of life. I mentioned prayer are like glasses that bring into focus how we're living and what we believe and how those things match up or don't. For Ignatius, he realized that the way he lived did not match his beliefs that he professed as a Christian. Mary, when she appeared to the two children in La Salette, talked about her desire for the people to be reconciled with her son. If they are converted, she said, rocks and stones will turn into heaps of wheat. Now, this conversion is not about religion, as it may seem to us, but about conversion to a new way of life. After John the Baptist died, Jesus picked up the ministry of reconciliation, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, in the scripture, the word used for repent in Greek is metanoia, which means to change one's mind. And maybe we could even say to change one's heart or to change one's whole being. This is key because many of Jesus' metaphors in Scripture about the kingdom have to do with change, yeast, a seed, a tree. What is this change Jesus is calling people to? complete change of life, a new way of seeing. He calls us to, to die to our old selves, leave our families, cast aside old ways of life and thinking. He tells people to sin no more. He tells the rich young man to sell his possessions. He tells people to drop their careers and follow him. Radical. This is the conversion of reconciliation. It's reconciling ourselves to a new way of living. Just ask someone who's experienced some sort of conversion in their life. They'll tell you it was like seeing with new eyes. The Jesus movement was not so much about a new religion, but a new way of life, a new way of relating to one another, to God, to creation even. On Ash Wednesday, many of us, when we received ashes, may have heard, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, change. This is essentially saying, let the gospel change you. Let the gospel change you. Let me read for you a writing by a saint of the church who experienced this profound kind of change. 
Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things are coming. New things have come. And all this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, as if God were appealing through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who did not know sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now the writer of this was St. Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. The same St. Paul who described his conversion as scales falling away from his eyes. He could see again with new eyes. The old things have passed away and new things have come. The other day, someone told me that they were thinking about one of the last words of Christ. It is finished. And when he thought about these words, he heard that as Jesus saying, the old ways have passed away. I've brought something new. It is finished. For my hospital patients, their reconciling was allowing those old ways of living to pass away. The ways of holding ju- uh, judgment and grudges. The ways of clinging to self-hatred. Of keeping distance from God. Of attachment to ego and to self-righteousness. Reconciliation is a making right in God. And the prophet Isaiah gives this beautiful uh, image, this beautiful metaphor of leveling. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. It's a radical new way of life, but this is the trajectory of creation. The kingdom will be made whole at the end of time, which Isaiah also prophesies. When wolves and sheep live together in peace, when the rich and poor will be friends, when conservatives and liberals will find peace with one another, when Atlanta traffic is no more, that's when we know the kingdom has fully arrived, right? The theologian Karl Barth said that we must hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. We need to make real our faith in the world. And the more I read humanity's story in Scripture, and the more I listen to the news, the more I'm realizing 
of how much reconciling has yet to be done. The division we experience in our society today and even in our families is not new. It's not new. You can find all of that in Scripture. The division between the haves and have-nots, the powerful and the oppressed, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, it's not new. And you can always find Jesus working to bring groups together to end division, to reintegrate outcasts with society, to invite and allow sinners and Pharisees, who, by the way, were also sinners, to eat together, to share a meal. Here's the message translation of the beginning of Luke chapter 15. It captures how much Jesus saw love and friendship as integral to reconciliation. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not pleased at all. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. How dare he? How can he be friends with such bad people? Who would you not eat dinner with? Who would you not invite into your home? Allow me to take you back to Jesus' time to imagine another gospel story unfold. And I'll invite you again to close your eyes or lower your gaze if that's more comfortable for you. And I first invite you to consider the feelings you feel when you think about the division in our world today, the divisive politics, the broken families, the abuse of relationships, the people in our world who are outcast or seen as less than? How do your feelings stir up inside? People have been feeling this way for centuries in their own various periods of history. And Jesus' time was no different. You had people in power and people who weren't, people who believed God favored some over others. So with this in mind, let's imagine this scene unfold in your mind's eye. <coughs> A Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house, reclined at table. Now there was a sinful woman in the city who learned that he was at table in the house of the Pharisee. 
bringing an alabaster flask of ointment, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears. She then wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus said to him in reply, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people were in debt to a certain creditor. One owed 500 days' wages and the other owed 50. Since they were unable to repay the debt, he forgave it for both. Which of them will he love more? Which of them will love him more? Simon said in reply, The one, I suppose, whose larger debt was forgiven. Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? When I entered your house, you did not give me water for my feet, but she has bathed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she has not ceased kissing my feet since the time I entered. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. So I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But to the one whom little is forgiven, loves little. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The others at the table said to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let this scene stir another moment for you. And now open your eyes and return to our own place and time. The shock in this scene is that Jesus allowed a sinner, a woman at that, to touch him, even exposing her hair, which would have been scandalous. Jesus doesn't get caught up with the cultural shock. He's not there to be shocked or to condemn, but to reconcile, forgive, and love. In telling the story about debts, he puts the idea of sin and forgiveness into terms his audience can understand. But more shockingly, he connects forgiveness to love. Her many sins have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But to the one whom little is forgiven, loves little. Forgiveness doesn't come through sacrifice, but through love. Reconciliation only demands love. 
This is a radical departure from the way Jewish people understood forgiveness. It came through blood sacrifice. That's the old way passing away through Jesus. The new way is the way of radical love and compassion. It's a love and forgiveness so radical that Jesus makes point after point about this. He says, don't forgive just seven times, forgive 77 times. Don't put limits on your love. Then Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son who essentially takes his father's inheritance early and runs off to squander it. He might as well have said to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. After running out of money and starving, he comes to his senses, supposedly, and returns home. And he even rehearses what he's going to say to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired workers. Now, maybe he had true true repentance. Maybe he was trying to take advantage of his father again in his dire situation. We don't know his motivations. But the father catches sight of him in the distance, and the scriptures say the father was filled with compassion when he saw his son. Not hatred, not anger, compassion. Our reaction may have been of anger if it were our own child. Now, my daughter's only two, so I couldn't imagine that yet. (laughs) I don't have much inheritance for her either. (laughs) But we might might want to give this, this ungrateful boy a laborious job to pay back what he stole to hold resentment, to lose complete trust, to take away any responsibilities or honor he had. Rather, his father gives his son fine clothes, throws him a party, feeds him well, puts the ring of authority on his finger. It doesn't make sense. But that's the point. The Jesuit Howard Gray said, God makes no sense if you use the criteria of this world. God makes no sense if you use the criteria of this world. And this story comes in a trio of of parables in, in Luke chapter 15 which includes one about a shepherd who leaves his flock to search for the lost one. That wouldn't make sense to a shepherd. Then there's the parable about a woman who spends day and night searching for a coin she lost, though she had other money, and then when she finds it, she throws a party. That might seem like a waste of time to us. 
These metaphors of love and reconciliation don't make sense because we often put conditions on love. We default to the three R's of resentment, retribution, and revenge. We don't trust in the power of love and the R of reconciliation. Notice I haven't once talked about going to confession. That is only one part of reconciliation with God. And while the sacrament is an important tool of healing and grace, the danger is thinking that that's all there is to reconciliation. When you leave the confessional, are you loving the way Jesus loves? Do you show unbridled love and welcome to people who are strange and different than you? Do you hold on to long-standing grudges and resentments? Or can you lay those things down? Can, you, can your difficult relationships be built on love and compassion for the other? Reconciliation is also an accounting term. But the way of Jesus is not about counting. Growing up, I was always told that uh, God would be keeping track of my sins in God's book, making a black tick mark next to my name for each sin I committed. That's not God's way. And the older brother in the prodigal son story probably expected his father to be that way, to want to have a zero sum, a way for the foolish younger son to pay back what he took. That's retributive justice. That's the way of the world, accounting, getting even. That's not the way of Jesus. No, the father in the story knew that reconciliation was compassionate, bold, unbridled love. The rain and sun fall on both the good and the bad. Each plant flower, and weed in your garden is offered the same nourishment. There's no discrimination in God's love and mercy. And maybe this challenges your image of God. It did mine. You know, the, the unofficial motto of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which is a post-grad year of service, is ruined for life. And the idea is that it's so transformative and life-changing, it will ruin the way that you see your life and your world. 
it will radically be changed. Metanoia. It will challenge the old ways and paradigms that you've held so close to. Well, Jesus did this all the time. He ruined the ways the Jews understood religion and God. He ruined the way outcasts understood God's mercy and forgiveness. He challenged the system of retributive justice, instead calling for a justice based on love and healing and reconciliation and compassion. He turned the old paradigm on its head. And it scandalized some, for sure. Heck, he went to the cross for it. But for others, it held. And it created a whole movement which we are inheritors of. The old shall pass away. New things will come. I invite us now to just sit and rest in this truth. This unquenchable love. This kind of forgiveness and mercy. As we listen to a song by Tony Alonzo that draws from the prodigal son parable, listen to the words and notice the three voices. I will rise and go to my father, come to my senses, confess what I've done. I will implore his peace and his pardon. All will be well and all be one. All will be well and all be one. I will arise and watch by the out my hand to the one I have scorned. I will lay down the resentment I harbor. All will be well and all be one. All will be well and all be to my father I will arrive 
and welcome my child I will lay down the resentment I harbor All will be well and all be one Be one All will be well and all be one I mentioned that you know, reconciliation is not just a new way of life, a new way of, of seeing, of, of even seeing others, um, but a new way of relating to God and to God's creation, which includes one another. But in recent years, we've been recognizing how reconciliation uh, is also about our relating to the creation of the environment, the natural world, God's creation, our shared garden that we're called to till together. And it's interesting that the original story in Genesis takes place in a garden. A garden is where death happens and where new growth occurs. A garden with creatures that are reconciled is God's plan. In his encyclical Laudato Si, Pope Francis says that the original Genesis accounts of creation suggest that human life is grounded in three fundamental and closely intertwined relationships with God, with our neighbor, and with the earth itself. The scripture says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. To till it and keep it. God didn't mean to say that we ought to control it. You know, a gardener cannot control the growth or always control the quality of the fruit produced. But a gardener can till and water and prune. But that's not what our first parents did. They tried to control it. And in turn, the harmony of relationship, uh, relationships of all creatures was, was ruptured. And St. Francis of Assisi saw this rupture and understood this rupture as a need for reconciliation between all created things, a return to that original garden. Pope Francis says, this is a far cry from our situation today, where sin is manifest in all its destructive power in wars and various forms of violence and abuse, the abandonment of the most vulnerable, and attacks on nature. Both Francis's see the places that have a need for healing and for reconciliation. There's nothing excluded from God's care. Nothing is excluded from God's care. St. Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things. 
So I, I invite you to consider the ways you care for all non-human things. Pets, water, natural resources, the ozone layer, trees and plants. All created by God, all loved by God. How are we treating those things? St. Ignatius saw all created things as gifts from God. Gifts. And his question was, how do we use those gifts? Do we use them to bring us into greater harmony with God or for selfish and superficial reasons? How does my use of a fossil fuel-burning car work for or against the reconciliation of creation? How does it affect the gift of God's ozone layer protecting the earth? How do my purchases even affect the reconciliation of creation? How does my consumption and disposal habits affect these things or affect my sisters and brothers in other parts of the world? Are we tilling the garden or are we trying to control it? Let me read for you a great quote from Pope Francis in Laudato Si. In calling to mind the figure of St. Francis of Assisi, we come to realize that a healthy relationship with creation is one dimension of overall personal conversion, which entails the recognition of our errors, sins, faults, and failures, and leads to a heartfelt repentance and desire for change. There's that conversion part of reconciliation, where repentance means change. Francis continues, the Australian bishops spoke of the importance of such conversion for achieving reconciliation with creation. To achieve such reconciliation, we must examine our lives and acknowledge the ways in which we have harmed God's creation through our actions and our failure to act. We need to experience a conversion, a change of heart. Notice how much talk there is of conversion and change of heart. It's again about the passing away of the old and the emerging of the new. And every Lent we go through, we ought to change a little bit more, forgive a little bit more frequently, become tillers and reconcilers. We should see our hearts changing and our love becoming more radical. You know, St. Ignatius said, essentially, our purpose in life is for all creation to grow in one loving union with God and one another. That sounds like reconciliation. And everything we do Every action we take, every choice we make, everything we say ought to help toward that end, toward that purpose. 
And this means we have to consider our relationship with all things, with the earth, one another, God. So consider your relationship with the creatures of your life, that is, all created things. How is your relationship with your family, your partner, your pets? What is your relationship like with money or food or entertainment or your body? Technology, the environment, your home, your work. What parts of your life need some reconciling? What parts of your life need to be touched by God? The image we usually use in Lent is the desert because of Jesus' time in the desert. Not so much of a garden image, but the desert's a good complement to the garden because sometimes we need a, a stripping away in order to find the healing and the reconciling that we need. We need to strip our lives down to the bare essentials in order to discern the creatures required for that ultimate union with God and creation. And it's on your sheets. St. Ignatius offers this prayer of surrender known as the Take, Lord, Receive. He gets it. (coughs) Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. He says that all he has, he returns to God. They're gifts from God, but they're not the essentials. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. The desert's fine as long as we have God's love and grace. The abundant garden is fine as long as we have God's love and grace. And what is love other than the life force and energy of God that holds all creation together? Love is the seed of reconciliation. A genuine love for God or another person moves us to reconcile our relationships. As I said, the father in the prodigal son story was moved by compassion for his son. That's love. The father knew the bare essentials. And only once we know that 
can we move forward in tilling the garden? And tomorrow, we're going to talk about how we're invited to take the fruit and the produce of this garden and share it in love with others. If you enjoy this podcast, please do me a favor and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about Ignatian spirituality. And if you'd like to learn more about Ignatian spirituality, visit godinallthings.com.